Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. In general, I would say that my work as an artist and writer and humanity scholar has been about finding what I've come to call the, the cultural cure, various components of the cultural cure, which is easing stigma by changing the narrative, increasing education, and bringing meaningful engagement, really trying to dissolve that false boundary between health, medicine, social service, and arts and culture. To me, those boundaries are fake. <laughs> and we really need to integrate them because meaning making and purpose in one's life is vital to thriving. Thank you all for joining this really important conversation about a topic which just gained more urgency this week. And I thank especially our guests, Professor Ann Basting and Dr. Jason Kalavish for joining us tonight. Also, thank you to Rachel Friedman, one of our long-term volunteers and member of our steering committee who is producing tonight's program and is also the host. Both of our guests tonight have great books out there in the world. And just as a reminder, there's a growing library on our website, an audio library of all the programs. I wanted to thank everybody who joined tonight and everybody who also contributed to our organization. We are really doing this on a total, total shoestring budget, and we have now for 12 years. Every contribution matters. So thank you. Rachel, up to you and to your guests. Thank you, Susie. In the interest of using our precious, precious little time for diving into conversation, I'll keep my introductions short here. Dr. Ann Basting is the founding director of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee's Center for Age and Community, and she's the founder of Time Slips, which is an innovative approach to memory care that I hope you'll hear more about. And she's just a treasure chest of creative care. Her book, Forget Memory, was formative for me personally, and her recent book, Creative Care, A Revolutionary Approach to Dementia and Elder Care, is such a gift to all of us who are affected or interested in memory loss. We're so happy to have you back. Thank you, Dr. Basting. Dr. Karlowish is a geriatrician at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a leading researcher on the ethical and policy issues associated with Alzheimer's disease. As you can imagine, if you've been following the news, you know that it's been a very intense week for him. He is author of the recently published The Problem of Alzheimer's, How Science, Culture, and Politics Turned a Rare Disease into a Crisis and What We Can Do About It. I'm so honored to know you and that we got a piece of you this week. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Can we start with both of you saying a little bit about your work just to orient us to what you do in the world? And I'm also curious about how your work intersects or complements each other. My last question is like the rest of our time together, because it's all about the intersection, right, Anne? 
It is. And I'll say too that we were first introduced to each other as Brookdale Fellows, which was just really a formative experience for me. And I think came to know the beginnings of each other's work at that point, which was great. And came back together. Now we both are caring for parents with dementia and we're both writers. There's quite a few intersections. But in general, I would say that my work as an artist and writer and humanities scholar has been about finding what I've come to call the, the cultural cure, various components of the cultural cure, which is easing stigma by changing the narrative, increasing education, and bringing meaningful engagement, really trying to dissolve that false boundary between health, medicine, social service, and arts and culture. To me, those boundaries are fake. <laughs> and we really need to integrate them because meaning making and purpose in one's life is vital to thriving. I finally summed up what I am as physician and writer because I think implicit in being a physician is being a doctor. I take care of patients and also being a researcher who uses the science of medicine. And then I'm a writer and the two really interact. They're not distinct. I'm not a physician. So I have time to write or a writer. So I have time to be a physician. Usually it's the other way around because one pays for the other. You know, the fact that I'm a physician really does more and more inform my writing. I'm a geriatrician. I, I trained in geriatric medicine. And my focus as a doctor is the care of persons living with, with dementia in particular, but more broadly persons living with neurodegenerative diseases. As someone whose research focuses on issues in ethics and policy, diseases, Alzheimer's in particular, is uh, a bottomless, sadly, case study in those issues. And a few years ago, I arrived at this idea of seeing Alzheimer's as a disease of autonomy. I realized I medicalized a value and you could debate whether that's a good thing. But for me, it really helped to crystallize why is this a disease? And it is a disease because there's pathology in the brain destroying brain cells. And we can talk about that for a little bit. But it becomes a disease fully because all diseases, we have to recognize them. And in the case of brain diseases, they go after a cherished value. But it's a cherished value that's historically situated. I mean, autonomy only kind of got into our parlance in the beginning of the 20th century and only by the mid of the 20th century became to be more widely recognized. And only by the last quarter of the 20th century was widely recognized as a value that all should have. Mm -hmm. Informed consent in the 1970s was debated in America. You know, should doctors get informed consent? For myself, as someone who's interested in medicine, the sciences that emanate from that, writing just as the craft, just making sentences, and then ethics and value, it all fits together. And so my typical week is working in those spaces. On a Friday, I'm a dog, and the rest of the week, I'm a writer and a researcher and a, a bit of an administrator around the project we run. So that's what I do. When I read both of your books, a huge intersection is both of you are trying to change the cultural landscape and narrative. Dr. Karlowish, why do you focus on Alzheimer's disease? Or certainly your book does, given that you just mentioned that you treat all kinds of neurodegenerative diseases. Why Alzheimer's disease? And is there something specific about that diagnosis compared to mild cognitive impairment or other neurocognitive diseases that cause dementia? It's branding. And I don't mean that rudely or meanly. There's an enormous nomenclature crisis right now in the field. And for now, Alzheimer's is the umbrella term, but that's not correct. It shouldn't be the umbrella term. So that's the framing. But the general topic I'm interested in is disabling cognitive impairments in late life that are caused by diseases that destroy brain cells. That's a mouthful, but it needs a better label. I actually, I'm part of a nomenclature group that's working on thinking about the nomenclature. 
But for now, Alzheimer's is the all-encompassing term. And the fact that that is the all-encompassing term is itself a very interesting story and conversation. But the general theme is thinking about diseases that cause someone who had developed to whatever peak they reached, excuse the term, to enter adulthood. And then things change and they start to lose their ability to self-determine their life. They start to lose some aspects of their identity. They have to surrender some of their privacy. And those three things lend themselves just a whole host of very interesting questions at the intersection, not just of medicine, law, culture, society. And that's why I find it very interesting. I would jump in there and say that it's interesting how I've seen my work evolve because I, I think I really started with Alzheimer's. It was where I first worked on the improvisational storytelling method on a locked unit. But gradually, I've sort of started seeing it much more around older adults who are isolated for whatever reason. I find that it's a disease of autonomy. It's an experience of profound isolation because expressive relationships are clipped all around the person, the expressive capacity, cognition of taking in information and processing it and sending it back out. So many different conditions involved in it are isolating and that the processes that we're trying to bring back through relationship building and community building are really trying to invite people out of the experience of isolation back into connection, meaningful connection and community. So um, trying to not re-stigmatize by calling it an Alzheimer's intervention, because then everybody with that diagnosis gets put over here and further isolated. The nomenclature challenge is real because you're trying not to fall prey to stigma mm -hmm. and not to exacerbate it but to find a way to say, this workshop is accessible to people with cognitive challenge, whatever they are, or people who might be under-connected. We started using that language as well, just to, as a way to throw your arms open, to try to make sure people who are experiencing cognitive challenges can feel part of their community. It really opens up the dialogue or the invitation to join in what you're both bringing, because Otherwise, a lot of people, I think, see Alzheimer's and say, oh, God, thank God that's not me, or luckily that's not me. This conversation that we're having is really about a much wider range of folks than just fall into the diagnoses of Alzheimer's disease. The other stigmatizing term you're dealing with is dementia. And yet, you do want a term to describe disabling cognitive impairments, because people with disability need to be identified so they can get reasonable accommodations for their disabilities. But yeah, we have a nomenclature problem and a stigma problem. They're interrelated, but I don't think you can just solve it by changing the language. So let's get this piece out of the way that is the elephant in the room, that this week the FDA approved the use of biogens. Adopanumab, you recently wrote an article in which you said you will not prescribe it. That's right. My message was to FDA, I'm not going to prescribe it, so you shouldn't approve it. They didn't listen to me. They approved it. Alzheimer's is a disease of autonomy. I've said that. And now with this drug approved and in respect for patient autonomy, I, I will, after educating a family and a patient about the uncertain benefit of the drug, not whether, what is its benefit, but whether it is even beneficial as well as its risk and cost, and its costs are substantial depending on a copay. If someone wants to take it, I will respect their self-determination to take it but I am a very unenthusiastic prescriber for it. And the reason why is the evidence just isn't there to support approval. And the FDA's approval in brief is not a slam dunk, safe and effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease. It's not. 
The FDA's approval is under a very unique set of regulations that allow approval conditional on an additional study, and the approval is on the basis of a claim that the drug's effect on a biomarker translates into clinical response and the biomarker is brain amyloid. I have to say, the announcement came out at 11 a.m. Eastern time at 10.59 a.m. Eastern time, if you had surveyed the leading experts in the field, is amyloid a biomarker for treatment of the disease? They would have said, no, we're still working on that. And at 1101, we're like, well, maybe it is. <laughs> if you don't laugh, you cry. So that's a very contested claim. I mean, FDA said Biogen needs to do another study to validate this claim. So the FDA even admits we want more research. That's exactly what I called for in my essay. But how are you going to do that study when you put the drug out on the market at the same time becomes a vexing challenge. Moreover, the CEO of the company has said, we'll probably get that study done in nine years. That must be terribly disappointing to your patients. You know, it's interesting. I don't want to give you numbers because I don't create a false specificity, but the emails I'm getting are running majority what just happened, certainly from my colleagues and also from my patients. I got one angry email, how dare you say I shouldn't get it, et cetera, et cetera. But the majority of the the respondents and the correspondence is what's going on here? What happened? Even people who are taking it in the trial, and they're put in this weird, well, I'm in the trial, I want to make this a good drug, but what just happened, because I'm in the trial for science, and yet this doesn't sound like science. And that's the thing. What FDA did wasn't science. There was no discussion, and they just did it by fiat. And the field's sort of like, wait a minute, I thought we were working on this as a team. FDA comes along, and there was no advisory board hearing on that question. The advisory board was asked a totally different set of questions. The question of how FDA decided was not discussed publicly. It was just decided. Everyone's sort of thinking, wait a minute, where's the scientific process that we thought we all agreed on? I made an arrangement to quote King George and you're violating my plans. (laughs) Did you want to add something to that, Dr. Basting? I wanted to ask if it was true that the brain swelling is, was it 30%? Yeah, 30% of these microhemorrhages. But if the drug worked, I mean, in oncology, we have horrible drugs in terms of risks, but they seem to work. And so people take the risk. But we don't even know if this drug really works. I mean, this is what just breaks my heart because no one ever got brain swelling from poetry or storytelling or dance. Yeah. Yet the refusal to make these programs widely available and supported just yeah. is ridiculous. I'm sorry, I'm getting all upset. So I get up this morning and my friend Josh Grill sends me an email with a link to a story. Biogen has teamed up with CVS Health to put together in the CVS store clinics some sort of cognitive assessment to identify people. They're going to particularly make sure that they do this in communities of underrepresented and otherwise disadvantaged, disenfranchised communities. I'm like, wait a minute, why wasn't this happening before anyway? It's to get the drug out there. But there's no reason why detection of cognitive impairment in the community to deliver the services and supports people need This brings me to the question, and and when we spoke earlier, both of you agreed that we're not going to drug our way out of dementia. Yeah, no, we're not. That's what we've determined, clearly, what everyone agrees on. Well, except for Biogen, maybe. In your book, Dr. Carlois, you say, for some physicians, drugs are the end of the conversation. For me, they're just the beginning. I needed to prescribe ways of living, which seems to me where your work intersects a lot. So- How do you prescribe ways of living? What does that mean? Both of you. I started out over 10 years ago, the book Forget Memory with people who became friends of mine. Roger got a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and the doctor said, the nurse will get you a packet. And then he left the room. 
Then the nurse came in with a little folder and said, here's some information and the phone number to the Alzheimer's Association. And then she left the room. And that is the gap. That's the chasm that I think we're describing. If there isn't a drug, that's the end of the conversation for the doctors. I'm looking with hope and trying to figure out how to translate it to this country, to social prescribing, where in this country, we're starting to see social determinants of health and talking about things like that. And insurance companies are recognizing prevention a little bit more. And so I'm like seeing some hope that some of these systems can maybe come in and be treated seriously as having impact on people's ongoing health when, when they're aren't pills, or maybe in some situations, people might choose it over pills, that there's information that can be gathered about a growing number of existing programs that are really burgeoning. There's a really hopeful development in a coalition that's forming called Reimagining Dementia, people who are working in these positive, expressive ways to really engage and enliven and enrich people's environments and have them feel supported and part of their communities. John Zeisel's work, essentially having a school where is it ethical to assume people stop learning and just let them be treated only medically? Is that ethical? I don't think so. The way that we set up our long-term care systems right now is not acknowledging the growth that can still happen and that people are hungry for. In light of that, can you introduce people to your imagination kit? Yeah. So my vision of a future would be of, I don't know what they're called, memory centers, dementia centers, adult cognitive disorder centers, but whatever the centers are, there'll be people like me and even more physicians dedicated to biomarker-based diagnostics and therapeutics. And that's all a good thing. You want people who are prescribing with rational therapeutics, but I want all those physicians to be conversant in, comfortable in, and recognize the value that this is a disease of humanity and that there's a role for the humanities, not just for entertainment to fill in the hours between the whatever infusions and have a good time on Friday at four o'clock, but because when you're losing your self-determination or you're threatened with the loss of your self-determination, if you will, you need to make sense of that. And that's where the humanities step in. So it isn't just to provide some entertainment, but it's to help people make sense of an illness. I don't expect physicians to just view that as fluff, but to view that as a substantive as the infusion and as much a part of the center as an infusion. And there's actually a model for this. If you go to a good cancer center, they have the support group, the art therapy groups, et cetera. And they're not doing it just because it's entertainment. They get it. No one debates that. And and so anyway, that's the vision that Anne and I practice together at a center, you know, and she's hearing us talk about the patients and the diagnostics and the therapeutics. And we're hearing her talk about her, dare I say, therapeutics, so I don't like to medicalize that. She gets me and I get her. That's my vision. I think all of us are in full support of this vision and super excited about it. So Dr. Basting, your imagination kit, you talk about it as a way to foster imagination and story-based activities, but You also talk about it as a tool to foster meaningful connection and wonder. I love how you talk about wonder in your book. I did one of these when Creative Care, the book came out, and it really shares the concepts of the core tenets of it as a communication technique, really finding your way to improvisation, to join the person in the moment, and then compel it forward with beautiful questions, which are open-ended, no right or wrong 
and kind of build on strengths and explore the senses. And then it's all affirmed with something we call proof of listening, which really shows the person that they've been heard. It creates mm. a little communication cycle that invites the person into expressing more and sharing more and really draws the, the care partners together in that process of creation. The book, I really tried to tell stories and make it super clear, but still at the end of the day, people are like, just put it in a box. <laughs> just want the box. So we did, we wanted to do it also in collaboration with people with dementia and their caregivers. We collaborated in a human-centered design process with the greater Michigan chapter of the Alzheimer's Association and their family caregiving groups and put out a series of beautiful questions on the table with image prompts to start that communication cycle. And then just some blank pieces of paper. We didn't even give them instructions and they opened the box and the room just filled with laughter. At the end of it, we had a little talk back and one of the gentlemen with dementia said, what was the point of this? Because we just laughed a lot and had a lot of fun and got to know each other. Is that the point? Because it works. Then another caregiver, a man who was caring for his wife said, almost kind of tearily, you know, our grandkids used to play with us and they don't know how anymore. This we can do. It's just a box. We want it to be really beautiful because there's not enough beauty in the lives of people with dementia. So it's pretty and it's well-made and designed. There's 15 beautiful question cards and then 15 image cards. I love that it's as much of a gift for caregivers as care receivers. Journal, which is, again, just beautiful. There's really small, simple instructions and then blank pages for people to write the stories and responses in. What gift do you give a family when they're struggling with this, right? Like, what do you give people? My dream is actually long range collaborating with museums and artists and just making volume after volume gorgeously designed and making this an ongoing thing that people can have at their fingertips, take with them, stick it in your purse and take it to the doctor's office while you're waiting, take it to a restaurant, you know, wherever you need it. And to really have the families feel like they have a way to engage meaningfully with each other and with family and friends who stop coming because they don't know how to engage. Yeah. Thank you for that. It taught me a lot. Let me give you an example. In my field, medicine, the standard question we're asked by families is, uh, relative asks about something which is not true. That is to say, when's mom coming home? And mom has been dead for decades. What do you do? My field is always trying, well, do you tell them the truth or do you lie? Mm -hmm. They call that the beneficial therapeutic line, the loving deception. And yeah, well, you tell them the truth, but if it really upsets them, then you do the deception. I get that. I think the truth's a good thing. And I think starting with the truth is a good thing, probably. But there's the third way that Anne teaches, which is, well, if mom were here, what would we do? That's no lie there. Because if mom were here, what would we do with her is a mm -hmm. perfectly conditioned statement that makes no predicate upon whether she's alive or not. That kind of conversation is a way to find a third way between deception and the truth that doesn't matter whether it's true or lying. It just says, what do we want to talk about if mom were here? As a physician, no, that's what I teach residents and fellows, et cetera. It's a very concrete example of translating the arts into medical practice. And that isn't just, again, entertainment and, oh, it's so beautiful, but substantive things that you can do to take care of a patient and bill for it. Thank you for that example. And the interesting thing is for me that we need to learn that. And the way we learn that is by 
seeing it and hearing it and watching it and normalizing it. Otherwise, we or I may not know, may, may not come up with that third way. What are your thoughts on dementia villages and what environments support the kind of engagement that you two are both talking about? In our conversation earlier this week, we talked about Glenner Square, which is a environment that prides itself in offering like a whole village designed to make you feel like it's 1950, 1958. There's a barbershop and a diner and Eisenhower's president. And so what's good about, I mean, this is such a broad question, but about deception, are these environments something that you like? And if not, what are the environments that we should strive to create? You have a whole chapter on it. So you start, (laughs) you go. I was talking about earlier with is when's mom coming home, truth or deception? I view Glenner Square as, as deception. It's architectural deception. Let's pretend it's 1958, Eisenhower's president. Let's pretend that's a maternity ward and those are babies that need your care. Let's pretend this is a town hall and you're the clerk. That's deception writ large. So what's the alternative? Some sterile environment. Let's make it look like some hospital. You know, Bring in this Lysol to add to the wonderful ambience. The third way here, I think, is aesthetic. It's not reproducing a time period. It's creating an aesthetic. So I get the sentiment in Glenner Square, which is what is the aesthetic of the environment that you would like to be in? For example, my husband and I live in a neoclassical home. We collect neoclassical furniture and antiques. We have electricity. We don't pretend that Jefferson is the president and whatnot. We know it's the 21st century, but we like the aesthetic. The dementia villages in the Netherlands have a merit to them that they're aesthetically organized around, do you like a classical environment or a rural? But they don't pretend it's like 1943, I think. But aesthetically, they create the environment you like. And I think that's what you want to do. I'll wrap up with this. If you do create environments that are built on a fictitious time, like Philadelphia in 1975, Well, as people start to age in the community, they're like, what the hell is this place? (laughs) And you kind of have to update it every 10 years. More importantly, and Anne pointed this out to me, how do you decide what Philadelphia of 1975 to depict? Do you depict the white Italian Philadelphia that kept Mm -hmm. the blacks out? Do you depict the segregated black Philadelphia? What what do you pick and how do you stay? Now we can't escape these choices, but I, I think it's more about aesthetics than it is about, let's pretend it's Durian, Connecticut in 1960, you know, or whatever, which I I just find bizarre. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I go back to my concept that it's a disease. I don't want to call it a disease. It's a condition of isolation. And that part of the treatment in every aspect, in the design of the programming, the design of the building, in everything, should foster relationship and community. And that means to me, an environment that doesn't just work for the patient, but also for the staff and for the family and for the children of the family and the Mm. the neighbors. So that this building doesn't operate like a a UFO that came and landed. And then it's like a locked black sphere that nobody can get in or out of, right? That it's permeable and it's welcoming that's what bothers me so much about the, the deceptive environment. There's a range of degree of deceptive environment. There's people in on the joke and people not in on the joke. It underscores the separation rather than mm. the genuine relationship-based care. 
Like, and, do the kids have to pretend it's 1959? And my colleague that I collaborated with on the Big Kentucky Project, she has created and fostered throughout the signature healthcare system summer camps for the staff, the children of the staff and the neighbors, so that their children in the building and around the building all summer long, there's choice, of course, whether you want to be near them or not. There's integrated and separate programming. It's a home and a community. My dream is that it's a cultural center where families want to come in and do the programming with their loved one. It's not like, oh, this is being enacted on you as a patient and nobody else can participate. It's interesting. It's collaborative. It fosters relationship and community. When I interviewed Anne for my book, that was one of my final sort of revelations, which was why am I bothered about these communities? Yes, it's deception. That's bothersome. But you know, sometimes you got to do deception. It was this sort of othering issue that kind of clinched it. These communities are essentially theaters. And it's this fourth wall, which is the space between the actors and the audience. And in some sense, that's what those communities are like. They're a theater and the audience are the residents. The problem with that is the othering. And what you want to do is break down that fourth wall. Where people want to cross it, you want to invite them to cross it. There probably is a role for some people that you just need to deceive. We just have to pretend. But the problem with deception is the othering. It's the, that's weird to go there. and Who wants to go there? And, and the staff are engaged in this kind of Disney-like theater. I think that adds to the dehumanizing, even though you're doing your best. And so that's why I have problems with those communities. When I was doing an internship in a assisted care community, I would say the biggest detriment to the people living there was that their families had no idea where they were allowed to come in, how to come in, and what to do once they got in. You know, most of my work was not working with the people necessarily, but with their families on like, how do I even interact or talk or listen now? And unfortunately, I didn't have Anne's work behind me then. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. So let's jump in with some audience questions here. Susie, can you help out with this? One of them is, Jason, have you visited Hutchwake and Glenna Square and are they presenting Glenna Square as a real place or is Disneyland sort of fun setting? The same discussion about robot cats and seals. There was just an article about this recently. Different if the setting is presented to PLWD as a stage versus if presented as a real place. So so I've not visited Hutchwake. I'd like to just go like to the Netherlands, but the pandemic in general, I'd like to go to the Netherlands because they really do dementia care well there. Everyone's assigned a care manager upon diagnosis who plans out with a family care. They emphasize access to adult day activity programs that are designed, again, based on aesthetics. You like a rural setting, you like an urban setting, you like a more whatever, and you go to those particular places. Glenner Square, I've not visited. I've watched their YouTube video. It's really snappy. And I've certainly seen all the testimonials. I interviewed the guy who runs the place in Ohio that's made to look like some town in Ohio in 1930. I've not visited them, but I've certainly read about them. And the other bit of your question was robot pets and cats. I get the logic of them insofar as you're using them in a desperate effort to try and give contentment to someone who can't deal with an animal that's a living animal because of care issues, etc. 
And your alternatives are things like sedating, frankly, antipsychotics, et cetera. And so, you know, medicine is loaded with tragic choices. And let's never forget that in the end, medicine is a tragic profession. It's not to excuse faults and things, but it's to recognize that. And if I had to choose between Seroquel or robotic cat, I'll take the robotic cat. And yet a robotic cat is just that it is a robotic cat. It's not a real cat. And, and I think it's a disturbing thing to see a patient interact with it like it's a real cat. It becomes even more disturbing when we're prescribing them and like get them all the robotic cats, et cetera. These are some of the tough choices I think we face, which is what kinds of spaces, activities do we give to people who fundamentally can't self-determine their life anymore? Like tonight I will go here and do that and I will eat that and I will do that. That's me. But when my brain starts to be impaired, someone else has to step in and say, you're going here, you're going there, et cetera. We let families do that as a matter of course for families, but once it becomes a public matter, you know, we have to decide as residents or as a community or as a society. And, and those are very morally challenging choices. You know, hand out fake cats versus hand out Seroquel versus give people a choice. But we have to make these choices. I will say this, I get the attraction of robots for persons with dementia. I get it. And there's certain mechanical aspects of caregiving where a robot could really be helpful. But the thing about caregiving ultimately is it's one mind filling in for another mind. That's what caregiving ultimately is about. It's not just about the doing, the scrubbing and the lifting and the whatever, but it's about the connection, as Anne's pointed out. The thing about a robot is it's artificial intelligence. It's not human intelligence. And artificial intelligence can go just so far with moral agency and moral experience, which are the two things that make a human mind, moral agency, moral experience. Robots are high on agency. They're pretty low on experience. And I think we delude ourselves to think that robots will solve the whole problem. We need humans to take care of humans. We need robots to help them, just like we need cars and all these other tools. But robots are just a tool. They're not a substitute for caregivers. All I would add is that we haven't made enough of the really wonderfully engaging human-to-human -human program available. And it makes me nervous that people will go to the robot before they have tried this other approach. And so there's an urgency to scaling the human approach first and the conceptual programming approach and the inclusive community approach, because there's a direct line to the purchasing department and the robot fleet in the closet. Ultimately, what that's doing is the staff, the, the stakeholders, the care team, that's depressing to watch. And that others the person even more. And it'll continue the cycle of the negative assumptions about dementia in their own lives, should they face it in their family members' lives. There's an urgency to scaling these other approaches before the beeline to the robots. This also came up in a conversation recently we had with Lisa Armaro, who is building a Montessori school for people living with dementia and early childhood education. She said that it's really important to train the staff in order to spread this different creative approach of engagement. Have you developed any training for staff in relation to your techniques or approaches? Yes, indeed. And John and I have been in conversations about how exactly to get those spread nationally. Time Slips, the nonprofit I work with, has an organizational training for 
any organization serving older adults, museums, libraries, senior centers, Meals on Wheels programs, skilled care settings. It is called the Creative Community of Care Approach. And that's the organizational training. There's individual certification in the Time Slips Creative Care Approach. We also have free family and friend training. We made engagement parties where we really just wanted it to be something fun for families to feel like they could learn these very simple techniques and then use them in their own lives. So it's a simpler training. It's not as in-depth as the others because family caregivers don't have time for that anyway. And just really playful, free tools for families. And then also service learning tools for students so that they can have meaningful experiential learning with older adults with dementia. In part, what steers people away from this conversation is just the incredible fear that comes along with thinking about memory loss. Barbara asked, for those with very early onset, how much can we steer people away from the possibility of dementia getting worse with activities and environment? We all read a lot now about cognitive reserve being a protective mechanism. And I know you talk about that, Jason, in your book. So what do people need to know about that as a way to both stave off dementia, but also as a way of dealing with it? So one of the open secrets in the field, broadly the field of dementia, is that for the last 40 years, the risk of developing dementia has been declining. And that's been seen across multiple well-done large cohort studies following thousands of people for decades. There's still plenty of people with dementia because chronologic age is our chief risk factor. One of the largest, fastest growing populations are persons over 70, 80 years of age. There just aren't as many as we thought there would be. The reasons have been explained by those studies. Basically, two words explain it access and opportunity. From early life on, access to education and the things that flow from that and the opportunities that flow from that. And you can start to put together sort of a list of activities that maintain brain health. And, you know, I'll give the folks here a very simple bit of advice. You're all on the internet, so go to your browser of choice and go to the Global Council on Brain Health. And I'm a member of it, so I know it well. And what we did over the last five years is summarize all the activities that have been talked about to maintain brain health, you know, supplements, sleep, cardiovascular health, exercise, et cetera, music, social engagement. And we attempted to kind of say, what does the evidence really say helps and what is suggestive and what seems to maybe be overplayed and let you decide there for what you want to do. And the materials we created are very accessible summaries. They're not written in a long kind of snooze report, but they're designed to really kind of pithily convey the main messages. And if you want to go deeper, you can go deeper. So Global Council on Brain Health, and we really laid it out. I continually recommend it because there's so much chatter about all these topics and you're going to get mm-hmm. lost. And what would you say to that? Even in people where they're experiencing early memory loss, do you see your work engaging with people and working creatively as a way to keep it at bay? You know, I'll let Jason read all the studies, but the the studies I've looked at, if it's meaningful to you, if it helps you build a social network, if it has a sense of purpose, I know people who are scared and so they do crossword puzzles and they don't like them, but they do them because of fear. That's terrifying to me that people are going to hop on a 
you know, have a trail or a gerbil wheel of brain training games out of fear. Then there's the Giving Voice Choir, where you can go and be part of a community, well, hopefully as it's opening up post-COVID, and sing together and feel supported and meaningful because the concerts are benefits for other people. That there's complex layering, sometimes especially in early dementia or early diagnoses, people aren't that different from regular old human beings. And what, what is shown in psychology to work to improve well-being and health works and improves well-being and health. You know, I don't think we have to necessarily replicate all research with people with mild cognitive impairment to show that some of these social interventions are effective. They're human beings. The question about the museum programs, you're learning, you know, you're, you're, you're growing your cognitive reserve. You're engaging with other people. It can be a very special, there's a social capital involved in a special museum program. I think they're fantastic. And if they're done well, both involving co-creation and learning fully and I think also a sense of wonder and awe incorporated into them. One last question from Lynn. She said in Dr. Kalavish's book, he spoke of the end of life issues with someone with Alzheimer's. When a person loses the ability to swallow, should you withhold all water and feeding orally? Does this cause the person to suffer more or less? Would things like IVs for dehydration be better? I struggled with this at the end of my mother's battle. Well, first... Thank you for courage to share that. And I'm, I'm sorry you had to experience that. I think the drive to eat, to drink is just that a drive. If someone wants to eat, wants to drink, they will truly open their mouth and take it in. And intravenous hydration doesn't solve that. And at the end of a life, a very common route through which we die is we cease eating and despite being offered, you know, by hand, water and food. And it's sadly one of the common pathways of these various diseases that cause dementia is just that people cease eating and drinking and IV hydration only causes more problems because people get all this fluid buildup and that goes into the lungs and whatnot and causes all kinds of suffering in terms of breathing and, and, and things like that. So, you know, this conversation spanned a lot from creative engagement to drugs which are being prescribed but might not have any effect to the struggles of at the end of life with Alzheimer's. So I thank you all for participating and Jason, Rachel, all the audience participants. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide and the op-ed project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home With Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. 
Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.